Welcome to the All at Once podcast, where we carry much like all of humanity all at once. To God be the glory. I'm Dara George, and with me today is producer and co-host Sarah, and we are so excited to welcome our guest today, Donnell McLaughlin. Donnell, welcome. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Donnell, we are so excited to have you here. Uh, also, a big thank you to our presenting sponsors, Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties. To our listeners, contact them for all your realty needs. Donnell, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, kind of your experience growing up, and what led you to pursue a master's degree in religious studies and anything in between that you want to tell us about? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in an apostolic Pentecostal Black church, a smaller community, maybe uh, 30 to 40 people. Um, so there was a lot of responsibilities. I was at the church all the time. Um, maybe three or four times a week, depending on the week, doing different things, cleaning, singing the choir, choir rehearsal. Um, I was also a Sunday school teacher. Uh, so I, I, had, I wore many hats in the church. I also played the drums. Awesome. Um, and so that was my experience. It was really immersive. And my grandfather was a seminarian. Okay. Uh, and he went to seminary in Jamaica gotcha. and was a pastor and then came to the church in Chicago uh, where he was a Sunday school superintendent. So I have long kind of roots in the Christian faith and, you know, back to my great, my great grandfather, who was also a minister. And it was a pretty conservative environment in terms of how they, you know, approached things ide ideologically. Um, and for me, the reason why I started to have a lot of questions was because of you know, the, the conflict between what I was being taught about love and what I was seeing practiced. Right. Yeah. I called it a crisis of conscience. Like I started to have a crisis of conscience. I was being told, you know, love is the most important thing. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Mm. And I was also seeing how we were having, how the Christian church had a reputation for being hateful, having an undercurrent of hate in terms of how they approach the queer community. So as I got older, I went to, I started to wrestle more with those questions. Um, and there got, I reached a point, I don't even know what, what you would call this, but my seminary professor would call it a, a transrational experience, a kind of a transrational moment where I kind of knew that if I stayed, I was not going to be able to grow and expand. Mm. Um, and the way that I wanted to, I, I wasn't going to be able to live authentically in my faith in a way that made sense to me. Um, so I transitioned to a different church and similar experience in terms of the uh, ideologies. It was kind of a, a more conservative environment, but the difference was the conservatism was more overt. We weren't allowed to discuss certain things or talk about controversial things, topics like racism or um police brutality, or any of these kind of hot button topics, politics, we weren't allowed to really talk about it. Wow. So I found more, more of the same as I went to this other church and kind of transitioned or expanded in leadership. Um, and during that, my experience there, that's when I applied to seminary. And my point, I went to seminary to be a pastor. I thought I was going to be this radical pastor that was going to be really progressive and inclusive and, you know, create safe spaces for the marginalized, the overlooked, the oppressed. 
And as I went there, I kind of realized about halfway through the program as I learned about the history of the Christian faith, as I learned about biblical interpretation, uh, the canonization of the Bible, these kind of questions, things that I've always had questions about my whole life, I started to get answers to them for the first time. And I kind of realized that I was more interested in teaching Yeah. halfway through because I was conflicted between going to seminary and being a teacher, but you know, I felt led to go to seminary. It was a thing that I was like, no, I need to do this thing. I can't like have my hat and two, you know, my eggs in both baskets. I need to just do this thing and go all out and see what comes of it. Um, and I knew I went knowing that I was going to be challenged. So I went open. Like I didn't go with any walls up about things, ideas I was trying to go to try to protect. And I feel like that really helped me to transition into that experience without being blindsided by this new information that I was going to be learning. And so, yeah, halfway through, I realized that more people need access to this information. Yeah. And I need some, there are some questions that I have that I need to answer. Mm -hmm. And so I switched to do research uh, instead of doing an MDiv. So halfway through the program, I transitioned from a Master of Divinity to a Master of Arts and Religious Studies. And I went and asked to in search of the uh, answers to the questions that I've always had. Um, What does the Bible actually say about queerness and sexuality? Um, What are some ways to read it in a way that are inclusive to queer Christians? Um, Questions about marriage and the history of marriage and how marriage is taught in the church, wrestling with purity culture. So these are the, some of the things that I wrestled with and hip hop, which is, was a big part of my deconstruction journey. Um, And probably the first thing that I ever resisted on Mm -hmm. Like I was told, you know, everything else I was pretty much compliant with in terms of, okay, this is bad. I need to stay away from this. But hip hop liberated me in ways and made me feel uh, empowered in ways that um, not very much else had at that point. Yeah. And so that was the first thing I remember being like, wait, what's the, you know, what's wrong with this mm-hmm. you know, music and stuff like that. So I started doing research about that and that became, you know, ultimately became the thing that I wrote my my thesis about. Yeah. So just really this pattern of journeying, being open, asking questions, and being willing to go and find the answers and being willing to be changed by what I learned yeah. um, is kind of what led me to the process of being in seminary. That's amazing. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there. And I think, you know, this season we're focused on making sure we're giving voices to, you know, the underrepresented, the marginalized, and kind of discussing all of the the various intersections of racism with religion and politics and just life, right? And so, you know, you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. kind of like not being able to talk about it, like, you know, it was the elephant in the room. So I'm curious for you, like, do you remember the first time that you became aware of racism in just kind of evangelical Christianity as a whole and also within your Christian community? I grew up in the Black church. So I think as I grew up and as I, you know, went to seminary and learned a lot about the history of the church, that's when I started to see the clear lines between um, racism, white supremacy, and how that has infiltrated the black church. Uh, One of the first classes I took uh, that touched on these issues was called Religion, Terror in America. And it talked about the history of religious violence in America um, and how harm was inflicted upon, you know, the indigenous and Black folks 
etc. And from there, I feel like I learned learning about the history of the Christian faith and how it be- became introduced to America and to the indigenous and how it was done with violence and how it was done um, through forced assimilation, uh, things like that, boarding residential schools, and of course, slavery for uh, for black folks is when a lot of, you know, was when most of the, the people from West Africa were introduced to Christianity. Um, so I learning about that and kind of learning about the ideologies that came from white evangelicalism and seeing how it is kind of, it's a part of our framework. I think when, when we were introduced to this religion, we were taught about it in a specific way. Um, and of course, it's, I think it's well known by now that uh, Christianity was in Africa at a point and in Ethiopia, people always talk about, you know, one of the first Bibles being from Ethiopia and stuff like that. Um, but what's lost in that conversation is that, you know, slaves, the enslaved Africans that were brought here primarily came from West and Central Africa. Um, and so those, those are completely different regions. Um, the religious practices were different in, you know, in the, in that region compared to in, in Ethiopia. So stuff like that. And then I, you see, once I learned about that and learned about um, kind of how sexually conservative um, a lot of white evangelicalism is and how the, even the, the entire idea of there being religious supremacy, the idea that, you know, my God is superior to your God. And because, and if you don't believe in my God, that it's a threat to, you know, everything that we're trying to build here. And that threat must be, you know, was met with violence. Mm, yeah. And so, like, learning about all of that and learning that history and learning about how we've adopted some of those practices and kind of carried it over to the Black church where we're, to the point where a lot of our approaches to um, how we deal with women, how we socialize men, um, how we, you know, deal with our children, how we deal with queer folks in our community, like, all of these have been affected, impacted by white supremacy. And that's kind of the legacy of colonialism um, and the middle passage. Yeah. So what are some ways that you see white supremacy and colonization playing out in Christian culture today? Um, I feel like the easiest example, the kind of the clearest example presently is when we look at American government, well over 90% of our elected officials are Christian. Hmm. And in a nation that is not, you know, that is a melt, that's a melting pot of different religions and traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of erases people who practice other faiths and have who have other beliefs. So, I think when we start to see the legislation of conservative interpretations of the Bible, um, stuff like the "Don't Say Gay" bill, um, legislation that restricts conversations about race and racial history. Um, anti-abortion legislation, stuff like that. Like, I think what we're seeing is people trying to legislate the Bible, trying to legislate their interpretations of the Bible, what they believe is the right way to go about things into law. Um, And in so doing, they're harming not only people who don't believe in these things, but people within their own community. Right. Um, or people who also identify as Christian that are, you know, that have queer children, for example, or yeah. people who, women who identify as Christian, but 
have had to, you know, get abortions for health reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is the clearest example of that. Um, and like we tell everyone that we are not a Christian nation and that we're not, you know, that we're open to all different perspectives and religions, but we we kind of are seeing how that's not really being played out and how we interact and how we engage with other traditions. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it, that's something that's hard for a lot of people who were raised in the Christian church to like grapple with. Cause I, I think about that too, as I kind of mm-hmm. like come into my own beliefs. Some are, some are similar to what I was raised with. Some are different, but thinking about our laws and how we operate like at, at so many levels, like so much of it is actually based in Christianity and a lot of like, you know, depending on your political party, like, a lot of the stances there are based in that. And it's like, that's cool that you believe that, but like not everybody else does. Right. And so how do you reconcile that of like, Hey, I'm, I agree with this stance mm-hmm. on this issue, but I also respect the fact that other people have different, completely different ideologies and beliefs. And like, we're basing a law on it or like a, an entire stance on it. So it's, it's hard. It's, it's something that like, yes, I feel like you need to do a lot of self-reflection to be able to be okay with like, hey, that's actually not cool, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. It takes a lot of self-reflection and education, you know? I feel like, and I think, again, to, speaking to the point of how colonialism is showing up in modern-day modern iterations of Christianity, I feel like all of that is tied to this idea that of Christian supremacy, that God is the, the Christian God, the God that we believe in, or, you know, the, the God that Christians believe in is the only way. And it's one thing to like believe that mm-hmm. and hold it as your truth for yourself. And it's another thing completely to kind of weaponize that against other people who have different beliefs. And I think that's what we're seeing with, you know, the history of colonialism of, you know, starting from the inception of this country, Christopher Columbus comes here and all these colonialist documents that I read when I was in high school that I didn't think twice of because I was a Christian. Um, I read the requirement. I read the doctrine of discovery and I saw how overtly, you know, Christian it was and how it kind of talked about Christian supremacy very blatantly. Um, and it spoke about the violence that would be carried out against non-Christians very blatantly. Um, and reading that from a, you know, being in the church, I thought nothing of it. But, you know, stepping outside of that and learning about the history for kind of the, for the first time, because I didn't really, we don't really cover a lot of how this history is mm-hmm. actually, was actually played out. Like they make it seem like the Trail of Tears was just a thing that happened as opposed to, you know, no, these people were, you know, forced off of their land and forced to migrate to other lands, forced to assimilate, forced to give up their language and their culture like we see that manifest today in how people approach Christianity, you know? Yeah. We, we don't tend to hear from the voices of the oppressed people. Yeah. We tend to hear mm-hmm. from the voices of the oppressors. <laughs> yeah. And I saw these things as like, oh, they were inevitable. Like inevitably every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's how I was raised. That's what I was taught. Um, but didn't really think about how, communities have been, you know, have been impacted and decimated by that idea, this idea that, you know, there's only one way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I just want to take a quick second to thank Inked Designs, owned and operated by Jamaica Jenny. If you need any merch printed, please do contact them. Um, so Donnell, I, we talked about like how you were raised and that kind of made me think about, you know, your experience in grad school. I, I'm curious what the reaction was from your your family and like, you know, the people who kind of raised you, you know, in the church, in the black church. Um, how did they kind of respond to you going through this process and like, you know, coming to religious pluralism? Like, how was that received within your close circle? I would say that there hasn't been much reaction to it because I don't have any anger or resentment towards Christians or Christianity. Um, nor have I completely dismissed or dissociated or disconnected from Christianity. Um, I feel like I, because I'm in therapy, like I've done the work of working through my own kind of grief and trauma and processing. And I'm able to engage with people who have different faiths and not offend them and not attack them. Um, I don't, I don't hold this idea that I have all the answers or I know everything because I think my truth is that we're all trying to figure it out. We're all speculating. We're all trying to, you know, answer questions that humanity has had for a long time and we are, we're all doing it in different ways. So, you know, as long as there is no harm being done to me or to, to other people, like there's not really a, a point of contention and also, like, I'm still me. Like, I'm still kind and generous and gracious and loving. I'm, I would say that I'm the most loving version of myself that I've ever been. And that feels good to say. And that feels true. Um, so I think there's a tendency, typically when people leave the church, there's, like, a lot of kind of hurt and anger and pain. And that results in people lashing out against the faith, against people who still practice the faith. Um, and that's not where I'm at. I'm at a place of peace and being okay with where I'm at and being okay with other people are and being able to converse with them where they are and in and, and their language and in the religious language that works for them. Um, so yeah, there hasn't been much ruffled feathers, I would say. <laughs> that's awesome. And I, I mean, you can just see the peace on your face. Like you can just tell that you're just like really have come into your own and, are just very calm and I think that resonates you know you. with the you. folks you interact with yeah so I read your master's thesis and it it like kind of blew me away um so the title of Donnell's thesis is still bigger than hip-hop and correct me if I get this wrong but it's basically an exploration of um just kind of the function of uh prophecy in hip-hop is that am I getting that mm -hmm. right do you want to add to yeah, that? At all? Yeah, that's the part. That's a huge part of it, and just like unpacking the birth of hip hop, how right. it came to be, and paralleling it to the birth of the church. Yes, I saw a lot of parallels and connections there. Yeah, it was so interesting. I loved reading it. So I just want to explain to our listeners kind of the value that I found in reading this work. It was like I felt like I was being invited to look through a lens that I don't normally have access to, to look at um, the Black experience, Black culture, and specifically hip-hop from the viewpoint of a lived experience that I cannot possibly have as a white woman. So I think that, that we've gotten a lot wrong in fundamentalist Christianity, 
because we reject or ignore lenses of marginalized groups of people. And we've done a lot of damage and damage continues to be done because we're not including these lenses in our interpretation of scripture and an interpretation of what's going on in the world. I think it's just so important to actively seek out those other lenses and voices. Mm -hmm. And when we start to really listen, we start to realize that these are the voices that need to be centered in conversations about healing the damage that's been done. So I just want to challenge our listeners to really actively go seek out um, content like this, like the content that Donnell writes and other uh, marginalized uh, voices and teachers Just because it's just so important for us to listen, just so we can be aware, and then to center those voices in the process towards healing. So Donnell is one of those voices, one of those teachers who is laboring to provide, to offer that lens to us so that we can better our understanding and have a more well-rounded picture of truth. So I I just want to say go read his work, go listen to his content, and we'll put a link for his website um, and his social media information in the notes for this episode. On that note, my question is, so Donnell, a major theme in your thesis is the purpose and function of prophecy. And you talk about how you see the prophetic function of the spirit in hip hop music. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So I think that one of the things that I unpack as I learned more about the concept of prophecy in the Bible, kind of like growing up, like I was always under the impression or it was prophecy was always taught in the sense of like a prophet can tell the future. They can say what's going to happen. They're going to tell you like, you know, when your next job is going to come or whatever the case may be. But that was kind of like the lens that I've always looked at prophecy through. But as I studied prophecy for this thesis and as i looked at how prophecy functioned in the bible how you know the prophets in the bible spoke about things it was not always about kind of foretelling the future it was also about speaking truth to power it was about confronting uh, issues within the context of where they were situated speaking prophetically to a people about what will happen if things don't change so i saw prophecy from a lens of speaking truth to power, having the uncomfortable conversations uh, that society is ignoring, people are ignoring, but that's causing a lot of societal harm. Um, And so when I think about the history of hip hop and how it kind of grew from a space of of neglect, of abandonment, uh, from being in communities that were under-resourced, that were underfunded, um, I saw what came from those communities and what came out of that South Bronx community was a lamentation of what was going on, speaking out loud about what was happening in their communities and doing it in such a way that it couldn't be ignored. And I think that that's what we saw. That's what we see with the emergence of hip hop uh, through voices like public enemy and other, you know, KRS one kind of so conscious socially informed, socially conscious people who kind of were represented their communities with their voices and represented what was going on in their communities through their voices and being able to convey that to other people. And I think it's unfortunate that it kind of became about entertainment and became commodified as entertainment where we started to sell kind of black trauma, black and brown trauma as entertainment. 
And in so doing, people you know, are dancing, they're resonating with the music of, because of the way it sounds, we're not listening to what's actually being said in the music. And when people do listen to it, I feel like they're listening to it from a vantage point that demonizes the music outright because there's profanity in it, because there's violence discussed in it, because of the language and stuff like that. But I think what connected me most to hip hop is that it was telling the truth about what marginalized communities were experiencing and their under-resourced communities, where there's not a lot of attention, where there's not, not a lot of funding, where there's not a lot of repairs being done to improve the living situations, to improve the situations of the context of poverty that these communities were experiencing and facing. And as I came to this thesis and studied and learned about the history of hip hop and learned about how, where it emerged from, I saw more clearly that it was about telling the truth about what was going on as opposed to hiding it, as opposed to spiritual bypassing, as opposed to saying, you know, God is going to make a way, you know, when that completely resonates yeah. with me. And we, I think we talked about this in the first episode, um, this like yeah. toxic positivity, right? Like, you know, you see it in a lot of different settings, but especially, mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's a defense mechanism, you know, in the black church of like, Oh, it's okay. Like, you know, God's going to make a way he'll see us through, you know, and w- which there's a, you know, obviously a degree of truth to that, but it's also okay to talk about the things that are hard. And mm-hmm. to your point, and like, I think in hip hop, like it's communicated in a way that sometimes is like in your face and it's raw and it's, you feel the pain, but it's it's stripped mm-hmm. away all of the the sugar coating and it's stripped away all of the you know some of the the religious language and terms and things and so i think that it's easier for the church to just kind of like no 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 that's bad like that's don't listen to that versus let's listen to the root of the pain here and like the root of the message even though it might not sound the way that we think it should, right? Like that doesn't make it any less valid. So I, yeah, that completely resonates with me. Mm -hmm. I think as a white person, I think for white Christians, the point is that we need to listen with the intent to understand, listen and know that, that there is pain and suffering and, and not just discount, things because of the things that sound mm-hmm. abrasive on the surface but yeah i was really listening with the intent to understand yeah listening is key i feel like again the the common critique of hip-hop is about the you know how in your face and abrasive it can be and again like when we think about that piece of it i feel like we're not really highlighting the voices that aren't you know there are voices in, in hip-hop that aren't very abrasive that aren't in your face um, but they're yeah. not, they don't get pushed mm-hmm. because they're not, you know, they're not uh, kind of confrontational. They're not in your face. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways you can explore hip hop and listen to hip hop. Um, and from a lot of different voices, voices yeah. that don't get a lot of radio play or whatever the case may be, because in a lot of cases, people's first, people's first uh, exposure to hip hop comes through radio or through media and the voices that are getting highlighted, you know, aren't always voices that are doing this work this real kind of prophetic work of bearing witness to what is happening in our communities. Um, they don't get pushed as, you know, it's not for radio. That's that kind of work. It isn't considered for radio. Um, so there's a certain kind of sound that get pushed and it's, you know, all about partying and it's about a lot of different things. But if you, even, but even those people who get pushed as partying and whatever, 
their albums, I think, portray a more holistic exposure to the the to the black experience. Because there's songs of lamentation on these albums about like how hard it is to grow up in poverty or how hard it is to lose a friend at the age of fifteen to gun violence or how hard it is to, you know, not being able to not be able to go to school because you you know, you couldn't eat or you can't focus. Like these are all songs that even the the rappers that are considered the most, you know, the most in your face, the most kind of controversial, like these, they talk about these experiences in a holistic way. But because we don't listen to albums anymore, mm-hmm. like that, I think, I mean, I'd say that generally speaking, I think we're in like singles, music video kind of era as opposed to albums. Yeah, um, you're not getting that full picture of you know what this artist is representing, and so you see this this one hit song as glorifying violence as opposed to um, talking about the reality of their lived experiences as Black people in poor under resourced communities. So it's a little bit of a systemic issue too with what gets pushed out to the masses. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say I have a. Um... I have a a family member actually who was in the music industry for a while and was straight up told by an executive, like before we can, you know, play your deep stuff, like the meaningful stuff, you got to have a hit. You got to have something that's like catchy that'll get people's attention and get them to want to listen to you. And then we can push out the more meaningful stuff. And it's like, I think back in the day that approach might've worked more when we listened to albums more and that was more of a thing. But now it's very much like, what's on my Spotify playlist? What's on the top hits of today? Yes. And so we don't get to that deeper layer, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really don't. And you're kind mm-hmm. of robbed of the context of what's, you know, what's going on with this, with this real human being who had real lived experiences. Um, because again, that's another thing that we tend to, when people become celebrities or when they establish themselves in music or in art, like we kind of disconnect them from their humanity. Mm-hmm. And especially mm-hmm. in hip hop, that's like such a dangerous thing to do because it's, hip hop is about humanity. I, I describe mm-hmm. it in my thesis as hip hop is people music. It reflects the status and spirit of a people. So when people are talking about, like the reason why you hear about drugs and gun violence and sexism and stuff like that in hip hop is because you're dealing with real people who are in communities that don't have funding, whose education isn't being funded, who, you know, so it's like, th- these are the contexts that I, you know, wish more people considered when they engaged music, especially music like hip hop. Right. And I think that's the part, like the, that rawness is a part that is validating for the people who are experiencing that stuff, but it's that same rawness that is um, offensive to people who don't understand it and, Mm -hmm. and makes them stop listening. Yeah. People are not comfortable with listening to other people's pain. And I think that's where we need to start. We need to start challenging ourselves to be able to listen to other people's pain and the rawness of it. Yeah. And I think listening to your earlier point, Sarah, like listening with intent and not listening to try to find a solution, but really listening to understand. And like, listen, if you're, if you are a white woman, you, will you ever understand what it's like to be a black man in America? Mm -hmm. No. Right. Like it's two different lived experiences. The same goes vice versa. But what you can do is take the time to really like understand 
where folks are coming from, like learn more about their experience. So at the very least, you can empathize with those emotions and like what they're trying to express without jumping to, again, toxic positivity, like, well, just pray more and, you know, God will take care of it or, you know what I mean? So I think that's, that's the missing piece. I think some people will do like performative listening or performative actions where it's like, oh, Mm. I went to this protest or like I said, Black Lives Matter. And they feel like that's it. But it's like, it's just deeper than that. And that actually kind of goes into the, the last question that I have for you, Donnell, is just when we think about like, actions that we can take within the, the Christian, you know, culture, like, what ways would you like to see change in Christian culture? And how can we start to move toward that change? I think the primary thing that's afflicting Christianity and afflicting Christian culture, especially Western Christian culture, is Christian supremacy. It infiltrates everything that we do in terms of how we navigate our relationships with people. We navigate relationships with the people in the in hopes of you know bringing them to Christ. Um, we you know serve people in hopes that they will come to our church, um, and we kind of tie that to the service that we're doing. Um, we treat people with kindness because we are scared of being rejected by God and of going to hell, as opposed to seeing their you know inherent worth as human beings, as worthy of dignity and respect and worthy to be heard, for their stories to be heard and for their context to be considered. And I say we loosely. I don't you know don't mean to generalize everyone or every Christian or all of Christianity, but I think that's the primary thing. I think we have to sit with and be okay with the fact that people will practice other faiths and traditions and people have other perspectives and different, you know what I'm saying, like different approaches to religion. They have different religious languages. I would like for us to see religion as a language. You know, we're all trying to answer the same questions and we're all trying to arrive to the same understandings. I mean, in terms of like, we're, we're, we're seeking out the answers to a lot of the same questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? How did we get here? All these things. And we're like, everyone has a different answer to that. Um, and I think where we have seen, we've seen unimaginable, inexplicable violence arise out of the idea that Christianity is the only way for people to experience divinity. And I think that the shift would come in how people approach, you know, how we engage and dealt with other people. Like, just imagine how cool it would be to see Christians working with uh, Muslims, working with Jewish folks to, you know, serve their community. Stuff like that. Like, these are the kind of things that I think would go a long way in terms of how people see and understand the Christian faith. Um, Additionally, I think that even the idea of the Great Commission, right? I think the Great Commission is is a framework that kind of undergirds a lot of fundamentalist, you know, Western evangelical Christianity. The idea that it's our responsibility to go out and make disciples and convert people. And I think that's harmful for a lot of reasons. Um, But I think we should change what our Great Commission is. And I think our Great Commission should be love. And love is considerate, it's empathetic, it understands, it is inclusive, it's radical, it breaks barriers. That's all the things that love does. And and I think that we have been given the impression that the Great Commission 
you know, the, the first of all, the Great Commission isn't a biblical concept. It was kind of put there as a title to describe the passage that, you know, that would that we now know as the Great Commission, which is go out into the world and make disciples. But I, th- I think what I learned and what I realized and what helped me to kind of expand and grow and open my mind is, is the idea of love and realizing that that's kind of the message that I think Jesus was trying to give to people. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that he said that that is how people will recognize us, is how we show love one to another. But now we're dealing with phrases like, there's no hate like Christian love. Because a lot of Christian love is insisting on one's own way, as opposed to as opposed to being open and listening to new perspectives and ideas and understandings. Not to change your own, not to be convinced of there, there being some other thing or to convince people to shift their beliefs, but... Um, just to be open to what other people's contexts are and operate from that place and still act in love, even if people don't have the same beliefs as you, um, even if they don't, you know, obviously look the same way as you, et cetera. So those are the things that I think would go a long way in terms of how Christianity is relating to the world. I think that radically inclusive love is the thing that will revive the church. It's the quality that right now, unfortunately, it, it it is lacking in, and also the thing that it says to be that it says it is founded upon. So I think we just need to be more honest about where we are in in our relationship to society, and and try to think about how can we move in love, and what does that look like? Um, and it might look very new and uncomfortable and radical, but that is the work that I think. Christians as believers in Jesus, I think that uh, we're called to do. That was so well put. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing all of that and your thoughts with us. Um, where can we go to find more of your content, Donnell? Yes, um, I'm on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter as Donnell Writes. So the same way that it's spelled um, on my TikTok is where it will be spelled everywhere. Also, you can find me at linktree.com slash Donnell Writes, where you'll find some of the articles and research papers that I've written, as well as, you know, a link to donate to and support the expanding of my platform and work. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much again for just your willingness to join us and kind of come alongside us in this work and being willing to discuss some really difficult uh, topics with us today. And it's just been really great to hear your thoughts on all of those things. So thank you so much for uh, being willing to come alongside us in this. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Big thank you also to Texan Bank and Friendswood for sponsoring our show. And also to all the people who uh, work behind the scenes to make this possible. First, Alita Caldwell and Funky Monkey for loaning us her studio to do this important work. And also to producer Janice Street, marketing director Robin Boren, social media manager Molly Bays, and editor Audra Bridges. Thanks for listening.